It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book Close Encounters of the Worst Kind and the captivating memoir Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. And today's special guest, Anup Kumar, MD, encourages audiences to rethink the relationship between mind and body in a way that informs solutions to real-world challenges, including healing diseases and upgrading the quality of our education. He has written books, written articles, given keynote talks, consulted with organizations, and collaborated with luminaries like Deepak, Deepak Chopra. Chopra. I said that wrong. Deepak Chopra. Dr. Kumar has been exploring and experimenting with mind-body perspectives since he was a child. He is a board-certified uh, emergency medicine doctor. He holds a master's degree in management with a focus in health leadership from McGill University, and he practices in the Washington, D.C. metro area, where he also leads meditation gatherings for clinicians. He is author of the book, Michelangelo's Medicine, How Redefining the Human Body Will Transform Health and Health. And good morning, Anoop, and well, uh, yes, good morning, Anoop, and welcome. There you are. Okay. Hi. Good morning. Yes, good. I'm here. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy and looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, you're very welcome. I'm looking forward to it, too. So there was, you had a near-death-like experience while you were in medical school. And since then, it has really changed the way that you think. I know that you have an extensive background in um, Advaita Vedanta, but mm-hmm. it seemed to, you seem to get more deeply into it after this Mm-hmm. near death like experience. So what happened? Yeah, it's funny. I just posted about this. I haven't posted about this that much, but I posted about it yesterday on Instagram about <laughs> this experience um, in the context of World Mental Health Day, which was yesterday. Um, so what happened in a nutshell, and then, you know, if you like to get more into a weekend, but in a nutshell, I was home from medical school for a break and was in the bedroom and was reading something and there was what I would describe like an explosion in the body as if everything was blown to smithereens. And the experience of living was no longer with a body. You know, the the kind of experience of existing was without body and without mind there was no kind of thinking mind at the time it was just what we might call pure experience or unpatterned experience and it was something like sitting in the sun in in fact the only way i could describe it looking back is by saying that yes this was sitting in the sun now when i use words like sitting in the sun and when i say there was an explosion none of this was painful none of this was difficult none of this was uneasy 
it all felt very natural, very easeful, very much at rest and kind of a, a deep bliss, one would say. Not like an exciting kind of, that kind of bliss, but just a deep, profound kind of bliss. And at some point of uh, sitting in the sun, um, the it was almost like the journey was continuing beyond this. Um, and at that point, then a thought kind of came for the first time. It was something along the lines of this, this is it, in the sense that there's no going back to that life or that lifetime um, if this next, let's say, you know, stage completes. And in a way, in a moment, I kind of knew that this is what I had wanted my whole life. Um, there had been some kind of restlessness in me the whole lifetime. And it was clear then that <laughs> this was it. You know, it's something like wearing a 50-ton backpack and you realize now that you're putting it down. Mm-hmm. And wow. uh, Yeah. And so there was this progression towards, there was no door, but I just metaphorically describe it almost like a door or the this kind of progression to the next stage or place. At that moment, um, a being uh, that was also of the nature of the sun, um, which I say intimated, uh, it wasn't words, it wasn't thought, but I'm going to say it in English, um, that uh, this wouldn't be fair to the people who are kind of in, you know, in my life. And also there's... Part of that was the feeling that there's work to be done. Um, And it was just kind of, it was almost like, I would liken it to like a bulletin board. You know, it was like information, but not not forcing the decision one way or the other. It was like, it was kind of like, hang on, just remember this before, before whatever you do. And um, that information, reading that, uh, because of my own desires related to those things um, made me pause because there was also, as much as I had always been wanting this, looking for this, there was also deeply in me that was to come out more and more in the subsequent years, a deep desire to educate and teach and reveal and communicate um, much more about health, healing, the nature of being human, the nature of the world, and so on. Um, and so because of that desire that was also there, as soon as this bulletin board, as it were, was apparent to me, I hesitated because I knew that was right. I knew there was more to do. And that hesitation was all it took. Like that that desire, the force of that desire to communicate, to teach, that um, re-imploded everything. And... Um, in a moment, in another flash, um, there, um, it's hard to say there I was, but everything, uh, the, the surroundings were that of the room again, um, and everything had changed. Uh, the way I saw, the way the eyes worked, the way the mind works, what the room looked like, um, what I thought I was, what I felt I was, um, everything. And it, it, the first 
you know, first it took in overall, it took about over 10 years to, uh, I would say, learn how to walk again, learn how to communicate. Um, and uh, here we are. That's an incredible story. What a gift that was. Ultimately, I'm sure at first it threw you a bit. Um, and I would imagine yeah. that um, you being in medical school and studying allopathic traditional Western medicine was, um, yeah. well, I'm assuming it was Western medicine. It could have been Eastern. I don't know. Yeah. But um, okay. Um, but anyway, I would assume that that kind of conflicted a bit with the things that you were learning. Because I know that... Um, you know, I had raised my son to be very holistic and, um, mm-hmm. you know, really kind of a, a certain way of thinking, spiritual and those kind of things. And I know that being in medical school, he really kind of, his mind kind of had to conform to a different way of thinking for a while until yeah. he was able to begin practicing and then he was able to, you know, kind of incorporate things. So was that, yeah. did that create a problem for you? Well, I find that it only conflicts and it only becomes a problem if we say that this is the best way or if we say that this is the only way. Um, you know, because it, it, whether something is the best way or the only way depends on the person and the context of the situation at that time. Um, and so, you know, there are some people, there are many people who say that Western medicine or allopathic medicine is the best and it's the, maybe it's even it's the only way or, um, you know, everything else is, is um, it's not as worthy or it's not well-founded. Um, and I disagree with that completely. Um, however, I do think Western medicine is great at, at many things. Um, it's just, in my view, Western medicine is actually complementary medicine. Okay. Um, and I think our whole understanding of complementary medicine is backwards. Somehow we came to believe, probably through marketing and through, you know, just habit in our in our society, that pills and procedures, that pills and surgery are primary medicine, which is insane. I mean, mm-hmm. to think that, that pills and, and surgery are primary medicine just shows how far we are from our, an awareness of, the fundamentals of health and healing. You know, the fundamentals are what we call the four engines, nutrition, movement, connection, and rest. They always have been, they always will be the fundamentals that drive health and healing across cultures, across time. Anything other than that is complementary by default. And that includes pills, that includes surgery. That to me doesn't put down pills and surgery. That puts it in a context where we see when it can be useful and how it can be useful. But when we take that to be primary, now all of a sudden there's a huge blind spot in health and healing, which is what we see in society today. So the, to me, that was the conflict, was putting things in context. And, you know, a lot of the people around me, um, including physicians, understandably, when you're, when you're not brought up, I was fortunate to have a different kind of upbringing. But when you're not brought up with that kind of perspective, when you're taught a physicalist and materialist perspective, and you're never taught that you're taught a physicalist and materialist perspective, right? In, in other words, right, right. There's, a, there's a dominant philosophical position in our society that all children learn and that is cemented in medical school, and yet none of us are told it is a philosophical opinion and not a scientific <laughs> fact. And when that happens, 
the context is completely lost. So it's really the context that creates the problem. And to me, and it's not the, any healing system in particular is not the problem. Okay, right. I completely agree with you. And I'm not educated in medicine whatsoever. All I know is that my body never responded well to Western medicine. Um, it never mm-hmm. addressed any of the issues that I've ever had. And um, mm-hmm. so I've always used Chinese medicine and Ayurveda and all different kinds of healings that were so much more effective. Now, I do see that there's a place for Western medicine, absolutely. <clears throat> but I, I, mm-hmm. I completely agree with, with what you were saying. So you said that um, as a child you were surrounded by the teaching of Advaita Vedanta, mm-hmm. which is the philosophy mm-hmm. of non-duality. Can you tell us yeah. more about that philosophy? Yes, so exactly. It's, it translates as non-duality, and it can be duality but also multiplicity. And the idea of multiplicity and duality is that the world is made of many things, right? And, and when we look around, that's quite obvious, right? There is the floor in front of me, the ceiling, the wall, the door, the sofa, the plant. If you go outside, there's the sun, there's the clouds, there the soil, the innumerable atoms that make up the the atomic universe. Of course, there's our own body. There's our thought, emotion, multiple, 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 multiple things, multiplicity. And yet when we look closely, we can see that in our experience, in each of our experience, we might be able to categorize this infinite multiplicity um, into two categories. And that is simply that which is me and that which is other, or that which is me and that which is not me. Right? Or another way to say it is that which is here and that which is not here. Another way, that which is now and that which is not now. It's either past or future. So we have these two distinct categories. And if we can even refine that further, it would say that which is intimate and myself and that which is rather distant or not intimate and not myself. This is where multiplicity can be resolved into duality. And what Advaita says that even this duality of me and not me, or of me and you, or of this and that, of here and there, this fundamental duality is actually a movement of the mind, which can be mind-boggling and sound conceptual, but it's actually experiential, that this duality of me and not me is actually a movement of the mind. And when that movement stills, then the experience is of an infinite continuity without breaks, with seamlessness. And when the mind and the human system begin begin to reside in this, there are entirely new vistas of insight that open up, and there is a healing that starts to transpire in the human system, a kind of integration and harmony that starts to transpire in the human system. This is what Advaita says. So Advaita says, yes, there is this apparent multiplicity, enjoy the multiplicity, deal with it, engage with the multiplicity, and recognize that beneath this appearance, there is a deep unity and integration that is not conceptual, that is experiential, and that has direct effects on how one sees, experiences, feels, and what one knows. So this this is kind of hard to relate to for um, anyone who is not familiar with this philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, it's us and everything else. Is, is that what you're saying? 
Yes, that is, if you, if a person um, looks at their own experience, you know, the, if you look at the stories of success in our society, it's generally going to be stories of accumulating things, of accumulating more, right? So if, if I'm a kid, then what I'm told is unless I finish school and I've acquired those thoughts, right, school is, depending on the school, a lot of school is acquiring the thoughts of other people, right? The people that have gone before you and studied certain things, they've put their thoughts down, and we can learn from those thoughts. It's our way of transmitting knowledge from generation to generation. And the idea is that we have to acquire this, and that is what makes us good in a way, or that's what makes us valuable, right, at some point. And then so you get a degree at the end of school. Then the next thing might be um, a relationship or a marriage. Then the next thing might be a house. Next thing might be a car or two. Then it's your 401K. Then it's how many vacations are you taking, and then you die, right? So th- there is this thing that what is valuable is outside of us. That is the other aspect. There's me which all of us have that experience of being me, that sense of who I am. And then there's all of the stuff that seems other. And what Advaita says is this, this line between the two is actually an interpretation or an appearance. And that there is a level of existence in which that difference is not felt. And the result of that is one feels complete in and of themselves. The fundamental duality versus unity that Advaita addresses. I'll give you a very simple example um, okay. that, that um, gives a flavor for it is when a person falls in love, right? So if, when we are in love with somebody, that sense of difference, that sense of I am over here and that person over there kind of melts. In fact, that's the word we use is that we're melting or that, and what is melting? It's actually the boundary of identity. We feel unified with this person. In fact, that is what intimacy is about, is about unity, both uh, mental unity and emotional unity and sexual and physical unity. So we see unity at multiple levels in a relationship when we are in love. And what Advaita says is that that is, that is one example of something that is much more deep and much more all-encompassing, that it is, it is not just in relationship with one person, but that feeling of unity and community is actually with all people, all beings, all things, all spaces, all times, because all of these are differentiated aspects in some way of the deeper mind. So why do you believe that you were shown what you were shown? Do you think that this had to do with the fact that um, you were going to be in healthcare, and that changes need to be made in healthcare. Yes, and also my my view is is that of you know a lifetime doesn't exist by itself. Uh, you know, one mm-hmm. lifetime is kind of like a Tuesday in a week. There's a Monday before it. There's a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday after it. You know, um, and and so on. So it's I think. In answering these questions, we have to look at a much broader uh, range of time. So, yes, coming into this lifetime, um, there, that desire was already there to communicate about this, um, to, to develop a language for this, right? So that's why from the time I was very young, I mean, there was no need for me to be sitting in advanced 
philosophical classes in Eastern philosophy when I was in elementary school. But I was there with all the adults <laughs> sitting there listening and found mm-hmm. it very curious and interesting, you know. And, mm-hmm. um, and at some point even wondered, I, you know, why do I kind of know this stuff? Like it, it's, I find it really fascinating, but what's, why do I know? And it became clear that, okay, at some point that, you know, okay, it is actually to communicate these things. So things kind of like, and then being an emergency physician, um, you know, going through medical training. Um, so all of this kind of dovetailed and is expressing itself now. Are, um, are you still in emergency medicine? Yes, I still work. Okay. Okay. All right. So how do you apply this? Um, or hmm, how is this um, influencing the work that you do? Well, a couple of ways. The main way is that, you know, when I, when I see people in the ER, um, I understand as frankly, all physicians do. All physicians understand that when you're coming to the ER, what is happening now is the tip of an iceberg, right? And it's, it has roots that started decades prior in most cases. Um, started with the families that we were in, what the families knew, the resources that families had, you know, the, the degree of emotional stability in the family, the trauma in the family, the knowledge, all of that and then including now their adult life, all of that now presents as this person in the ER. So when you see that, it's about connecting with this person, you know, and holding space for this person, which for me is an ongoing practice. Um, And recognizing that in the ER, what I'm practicing is emergency medicine. I do think the principles of biomedical science hold. What we can add to that is in knowing how, for example, holding space or in knowing how the mind and the breathing are related, all of these things can factor into the mood in that room and the feel in that room and how we understand a person. So when a person is an extremist, when they're in distress, when there's maybe something life-threatening happening, it's about how we are in that room, you know, how we exist, how we present ourselves in that room, number one. But number two, also, how are we, what is our decision-making like, right? What is our process of sifting through the right decisions, contacting the right person, getting the right things done? These are the two ways in which it presents directly in the ER. The third can be, of course, if it is a time when we have time and when there's not something immediately life-threatening, then to have that conversation and to say, hey, here are some of the other things, nutrition, movement, connection, rest, that facilitate health and healing that, you know, it's not just about there are other options other than just popping pills. Having said that, there's also a tremendous amount we cannot do for sure because the approach is that biomedical approach and because there may not be time in the ER. And that is why I absolutely had to find another way to express, which is why we developed the health jumpstart program. And that is a program where we, teach people and guide people through these four engines of nutrition, movement, connection, and rest so that they can discover that power. You know, that's one of the things I see in the ER is when I look into many people's eyes, I can see that that sense of power isn't there because they were never told that they could heal many of their diseases. 
right? As on our podcast, we have stories of people who are healing all the time from stuff that you're not supposed to heal from, apparently, that require pills for a lifetime. But people are healing. Why? Because they've discovered their power through the four engines. So this Health Jumpstart program is another critical part of my communication and my own healing uh, as a physician to, to show people that you do have power to heal. I so agree with that. Um, so tell us more about the Health Jumpstart program. Um, is this, because my question was before you brought that up, was um, how do we begin to integrate this kind of philosophy yeah. into our own lives? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and so as you said initially, and rightly, you know, when we talked about Advaita Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta has an entire range of interpretation. And at the subtle end of that range, um, it can be difficult to grasp right off the bat. It can take, it, it takes a certain amount of time and practice to grasp what it's really hinting at and the possibilities that it's really hinting at. So, you know, how about feet on the ground? How do we get started? Well, you know, one of the wonderful things about these four engines of nutrition, movement, connection, and rest is that they apply across the spectrum of what we call health and healing. So you might hear a lot of people say, well, this is about uh, prevention, right? You're right. They'll say, you're right, Dr. Kumar. You know, uh, the four engines are great. Go for it. They, it's all about prevention. We need to move towards prevention. And you know what I say? I say, no. You know, that while there's truth in that, it is a grossly incomplete statement. Yes, it can prevent. But guess what? It also heals chronic disease, even after there's a diagnosis. It also helps a person who has an acute condition heal. Jimmy Conway was an orthopedic surgeon who was diagnosed with severe heart disease, told he needed um, heart bypass surgery the next day, and he switched his diet, and guess what? He didn't need bypass surgery. That's an acute presentation of a chronic illness. So it's not just chronic illness. It's not just prevention. And by the way, guess what? If a person has no diagnoses and they just want to feel better and gain some insight, guess what? Again, it's the four engines. And finally, if somebody's looking for spiritual advancement, right, um, encountering new vistas, integrating new aspects of their spiritual experience, guess what? It's again the same four engines. And this is critical knowledge that is not there in our society. People think that lifestyle is about prevention and that's it. No, these four engines are tremendously powerful, especially today when there's so much focus on you know, test your genes, test your DNA, test your ancestry, test your microbiome, test your urine, test your blood. Yes, there's a place for testing. Yes, each of us is unique. There's no doubt about it. However, the low-hanging fruit of the four engines is so powerful that I would say 50 to 80% of what a person has to do is contained in these four engines. So that is what we teach in this Health Jumpstart program. It's a four-week program. The first week focuses on nutrition, the second week on movement, the third on connection, the fourth on rest. And the nutrition program emphasizes a plant-based diet where we switch what we eat towards plant-based diet. We teach recipes. We teach some of the challenges of that. We teach the nutritional aspects of that. The movement section emphasizes not just exercise, which all of us know exercise is important. Strength training is important. But movement is so much more than that, as you know, and as we've had people on our podcast who heal from emotional movement. They move some of the emotions they've held in since childhood, and guess what? Their Crohn's disease goes away. Their rheumatoid arthritis goes away. We have no explanation for that in allopathy because we don't understand 
the philosophical position of idealism or the idea that the mind flows as the body, what we call mind-body flow theory. So there's movement of the body, but there's movement of our emotion. There's movement of our creativity. There's movement of the breath. I mean, so powerful. The movement of the breath, which correlates in other traditions to chi and prana, is huge in restoring that sense of energy and, and feeling that vibe, that, that vivaciousness. So that's movement. The third week is connection. And connection, not just meditation, of course, meditation, mindfulness, very important. But connection is also connection with the planet. That means our feet in the soil, bare feet in the soil. That means sunshine on the skin. That means fresh air in the lungs. You know, that direct connection is so important. Connection with others, as all of us on this call are in a way connecting now and feeling that, that sense of community, you know, but also with your loved ones in person connecting. So connecting across the spectrum with the planet, with others, and yes, within ourselves. And finally, rest. Rest, not only just sleep, which again is important, but learning that routine, preparing for sleep. And how about learning to rest while awake? How about learning to say, you know what, I'm just going to sit here for the next 20 minutes and I'm going to rest. And that's quite fine. It's a wonderful thing to do. So learning how to do that is also important. So each of these four weeks, we focus on each of these engines how to start these engines, how to run them efficiently. We send daily um, inspiring information and a practice to people in each week. And we have three live sessions per week as well. So people can drop in with each of our four instructors uh, to, in a group session to ask their questions, to answer their doubts. My goal here is for people to recognize the power that they have. You have power. And you deserve to recognize and develop your power. And that is what this Health Jumpstart program will do. And the, um, the website for that is healthrevolution.org slash jumpstart, right? Yes, exactly. Healthrevolution.org slash jumpstart. One word, J-U-M-P-S-T-A-R-T. And people can sign up for that. We're, we've started registrations now at a discounted rate. And the, the program starts off in the new year. So, Start your, new year way, start your new year off in a way that you'll never forget. You know, sign up with a loved one, join the program, and let's get the world, honestly, to recognize their power so that we're not just dependent on popping pills or dependent on the same old story about health and disease. Mm. That's, that's such a beautiful goal, a lofty one, but definitely achievable. Um, so can we all, can every human being achieve ideal emotional and physical health? Or um, is the goal to optimize um, the, what we have um, to the best that we can? Yes, this is such an important question, Randy. I'm so glad you asked it. Like I said before, when you were asking about, about my purpose, we can't look at health or life or any of these profound experiences within the window of just one lifetime. I mean, we, we can start certainly, we start with where we are, no doubt about it. But ultimately, just like we cannot assess a, per a person's health by looking at how they looked on Wednesday, right? Okay, right. on Wednesday, this person looked great or on this Wednesday, this person felt terrible. So, um, that's what they are. No, that is, that is a snapshot into what's happening at that time. And um, it, maybe this is a stretch for some, 
Um, but in my experience, um, this lifetime is a Wednesday. You know, it is, it is an interval in infinite time. It is an interval in timelessness. And um, so I'm not going to say that everybody's going to heal of everything. You know, everything we do, everything we experience has meaning, including the highest highs and the lowest lows. And the key, the goal of this program is to walk with you wherever you are. It's to walk with you. It's to say that, yes, healing is possible. And healing doesn't always mean going back to the way things were. In fact, healing never means going back to the way things were. We, we have this phrase, disease reversal, that happens, right? So for some people who switch to this, this kind of nutrition plan and, and activate these four engines, they can heal from cardiovascular disease, and we say that's reversing disease. But even though we're saying reversing, what we're actually saying is that the, the state of the arteries that were blocked, that looks like it used to look. But guess what? Even though it looks like it used to look, it hasn't actually gone back. It's gone forward because that endothelium, that lining of the blood vessel has healed going forward in time, and it's now in a state that it hasn't been before. And that's the same for all of us. So healing can take different forms. The body can completely heal. The mind can completely heal. But that doesn't always happen. And yet, healing can still happen. Because healing is about a wholeness, and it's about an insight, and it's about a completion that walks its way into our lives and changes the way we are experiencing ourselves. And that can be accompanied by many different aspects of changes in the body and mind. So that's such a crucial aspect, and that is also a tremendous, tremendous aspect of power, Randy, you know, is to realize that for me to be powerful, I'm not saying that the only way I'm going to be powerful is if A and B happen to my body. No. You can be powerful because of the insight you have, because of the, the energy you feel, because of the perspective you have gained because of the purpose and meaning that has flowered in your lifetime, that in itself is a tremendous kind of power that nobody can take away from you. So when we're talking about healing and healing in the Health Jumpstart program, we're talking about the full spectrum. Thank you. That's, and, and I'm glad I asked that question because when people listen to um, – <clears throat> to someone talking about how to be, how to obtain optimum health. <clears throat> I think it can be frustrating for some people who may not in, in some ways, and as you were saying, you know, this life is like a Wednesday and I completely agree with you. It's, it's just part of our whole mm -hmm. experience. You know, what we learn mm -hmm. here, <clears throat> what the way that we grow here is what we take forward um, and, mm -hmm. and so forth and so on. That's, that's the philosophy that I believe as well. Um, yeah. So, so in this particular Wednesday, <laughs> um, yeah. so to speak, in this particular Wednesday, um, there we may have some challenges that require us to overcome certain things that other people yeah. may not have to overcome. And yeah. so, I think that's really important. And like in the work that I do, I find that as horrendous and life-changing as the abuse is um, from somebody who has a narcissistic personality disorder on the other side, mm -hmm. the growth from that is tremendous. And people often say to me, what did I do? What, why am I getting punished? Yeah. So yeah. 
you know, I, I feel the same way. It's because it's not that yeah. you're getting punished. It's that there's a growth opportunity for you in mind, body, yeah. and spirit, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, as you said, that in every opportunity or in every experience, there is that possibility, I would say. It's about possibility. We don't know when we go into any one experience what is going to happen five minutes from now, 20 minutes from now, one year from now, 40 years from now, maybe another lifetime from now, right? We don't know that. But the point is when we enter into that experience and when we bring all of our faculties to the table, which is what the four engines are about, when we actually develop and open all of our faculties to the table, we don't know what possibility is going to flower. And we've given that every opportunity to happen. And that's the beauty of this, right? So we're not coming into this to say that the only way this works is for the body to go back to the way it was 10 years ago. No, we're going into this saying that there's so much possibility and power in this human system. People have healed. People have so-called reversed pretty much every condition that's out there. Almost every condition that's considered incurable, people have healed from, right? So why not me? Why not now? However, that doesn't mean that that is my only definition for healing and that that has to happen or it doesn't work. No. What we're saying is that either way, what I'm doing is bringing myself fully to this table and therefore new avenues in my life are going to open up regardless. That is the real power, right? Even more than saying having specific criteria for healing. The real power is recognizing now that come what may, I've discovered new resources within myself that I can activate and apply and continue to develop irrespective of the other things that are happening now. And that to me is when a, when a person really achieves a degree of independence and power that cannot be taken from them. What a huge gift to give ourselves. I can't think of a better no. one. <clears throat> what do you say to someone who says, you know, listen, I don't buy into this nonsense that I'm coming back or I was here before. I just believe my physical experience is all there is. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, it is what it is. And I am what I am. And this is how I think. And what, how do you approach someone like that? Well, first I'd say that's perfectly fine. Do you want to optimize your physical experience? Do you want to optimize this? Do you want to uh, discover new ways of having a better, even better physical experience, right, of having more options, of doing more things, of finding out cool experiences, yes or no? If the person says yes, perfect, it's the four engines. And guess what? When you start running those four engines, that view is going to change. That view that it is only physical, that this is the only thing, it will automatically change. There's no need to force a philosophy, to force a belief. When these start activating, new experiences will come up that have to be reconciled, and that view will change. Now, if the person says, no, I'm fine with my experience, I don't even want to optimize my current experience, I don't want to learn anything new, then I'll say, fine. That's perfectly fine as well. There are enough people in the world who know that there is something more to this life. There are enough people in the world who know that something more is possible. They know that there is power that is untapped. And there are more than enough people to make a tremendous difference in the trajectory of this world and this planet and where we're going by saying yes to this. 
Good answer. <laughs> I like that. You're absolutely right. You have to meet people where they are um, and, yeah. and, and where they're going. But I, I agree with you. Just a taste, just a little taste of this can really open them up um, to so much more that's available to them. <clears throat> so yeah. you, do you see a change in the direction of, of, of modern medicine? Oh, there's no doubt about it. If you look at, um, you know, the word yoga is now an English word, right? It's a Sanskrit word, but now it's pretty much English. Um, if you look at uh, integrative medicine is now pretty much every major academic center in the U.S., including um, Harvard, Stanford, Johns Hopkins, they will have some kind of center for integrative medicine. Um, you can't get away with not having it anymore because the public has spoken. The public realizes that there is more to health and healing and medicine than the physicalist and biomedical perspective that we present in allopathy. Um, and so th these academic centers, they're, they're trying to figure it out. You know, the problem is the deep knowledge isn't there. So it's kind of having two feet on two different sides of the aisle, right? One is the physicalist biomedical model. And the other is in a model that, that they don't quite understand. And so the challenge that um, academic medical centers and um, I would say physician groups in general and physicians in general have is how do you reconcile the fact that we recognize there's, that there's a lot more to know. We recognize that we don't actually understand the principles or even the anatomy of Ayurveda and let's say traditional Chinese medicine. Um, and yet, we don't know how to um, keep the people who, who believe that everything we're saying is science happy. And what I mean by that is people think, for example, that our model of anatomy is rooted in science, but it's not actually. It's rooted in philosophy because it's a, it's a philosophy that says that a human being is made up of physical parts. That's not a scientific fact. That's a philosophical opinion, Right. Um, Ayurveda has a different philosophical opinion, which is that the human being is comprised of tendencies, and these tendencies show themselves as what we call mind and show themselves as what we call body. And um, traditional Chinese medicine has a view of anatomy of different elements, right? So none of these are fundamentally science. These are all fundamentally philosophy, including the allopathic view that we are fundamentally atomic beings. Now, once you take that, and have that kind of primary confusion that our model of anatomy is fundamentally scientific and not philosophical, now you have a, a, you're in a kind of in a struggle to explain how it is that other models of anatomy can be valid. And this is, this is the challenge that physicians in academic medical centers find themselves in. And, and frankly, they don't even really understand the problem. They don't even understand that this is the problem because the, the vision of philosophy underlying science isn't really there in most cases. So I think that's the key is understanding these different aspects and how they go together by looking at the underlying assumptions that comprise our philosophies. That is such an interesting point of view. I really like that. You're, and you're absolutely right. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about this, um, you know, and the little that I know, I mean, I know some about Chinese medicine and, uh, about those kind of things, um, but it is, it's a completely different way of looking at the body. Like for instance, um, in Chinese medicine, a kidney issue is not related to the kidneys, you know, exactly. um, 
Right. Exactly. Um, you know, the same a heart, the heart is not related to the heart and so forth and so on. It's, you know, it's very different. Um, <clears throat> right. And I would imagine their, their underlying mm-hmm. model is, is based on that of elements and meridians and not of localized aspects, you know, and this goes back to this goes, this touches on physics, this touches on um, philosophy, philosophy of mind and many other aspects that are not included in medical education and hence the blind spot. Mm, interesting. So, wow, medical school could end up being instead of four years, it could be eight years because <laughs> between... Well, I actually think it'll go the other way, you know, because what's going to happen and what is already happening is that we are getting a much wider range of expertise in health now. We're actually getting much more expertise in health and healing now and not only in disease management. A lot of that is coming from outside physician leadership. Um, and so what's going to happen is this idea of what healthcare is, and, and integrative medicine is a symbol of this, but this idea of what healthcare is is going to get uh, much wider and much more open. The doors are going to open more and more um, when these these medical centers understand that what they have is a philosophical problem. And it's two things. It's a philosophical problem and it's a practice problem, meaning that they haven't done the level of practice and introspection necessary to have that piercing insight into what is happening and understanding the nature of the problem. Once they develop some kind of systematized practice plus understand the philosophy, then there's not going to be any stopping this anymore because now the, the whole idea that it's irrational or unscientific, all that will start getting thrown out because we will have the insight, the reasoning, the rationale to understand what the problem was, and we will start solving it. And when that happens, you know, doctors are not going to be seen as the ultimate experts on health and healing anymore. I mean, even now we're not. We're seen as experts on disease, but the, the doors of healthcare are going to open up wider. And I think you're going to see many more practitioners, what we might call health practitioners, enter main, what we call mainstream healthcare, or rather the, the entire idea of healthcare as being a distinct field is going to go away. And we're going to see that health is really everywhere and that, you know, our departments or the sectors of energy and transportation and housing um, is actually all about health. And therefore, healthcare is everywhere and it starts with our own awareness our knowledge and our practices that we are doing wherever we are so this whole idea of healthcare as a discrete field that occurs here and not there is going to start going away the entire range of expertise is going to open up and that has dramatic implications for a shift in power because the center of power is going to shift from inside the clinic or inside the doctor's office and it's going to shift to within the person wherever you are number one and, of course, money, because that money is going to follow that power. So there's going to be a huge money shift away from what healthcare is now, too. So there are going to be tremendous changes coming that are already underway. That's exciting. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I mean, insurance companies have not caught up with this yet. Because um, to go to an integrative doctor or, um, you know, holistic doctor, often it's an out-of-pocket experience, uh, financial experience, because, uh, it's not recognized so much by, you know, right. by insurance companies. And so it can be quite expensive. I know for me, um, in my healing journey, it's cost a fortune, you know, to try to yeah. um, find practitioners that um, could benefit me, but the insurance company didn't see it that way, you know. 
<clears throat> so that's got to change too. Is this all? Does this? Is this related to quantum science, um, or is there any kind of relationship? Because I know you know you're talking about science, and um, science yeah. is is only as real uh, until the next thing changes. So there really is no science per se, right? Yes. So. So there's, this is, of course, related to science because, frankly, it's related to everything, right? This is about, I mean, health, healing, wholeness. This is directly related to, to everything that we're interested about because to take a step back, when we're doing science, what are we doing? We are using our perceptions, right? That's our foundation. For, the foundation of science is perceptions. It's what we see, what we hear, what we taste, what we touch. And based on those perceptions, we formulate thoughts. So the next step in science is thinking, and that's how we formulate. So our perceptions are what we call observations, and our thinking is what we call the hypothesis formulation. So you have observations from which you formulate a hypothesis, that is, that is perceptions and then thought, and then you run the experiment and you draw conclusions again, which again is thought, and you make subsequent observations, and the cycle continues. So it's the cycle of perceiving and thinking that we call science, specifically in the form of observation, hypothesis, experimentation, drawing conclusions, and cycling back. So this is what we call science. Why are we doing it? Because we want to understand the world. It's very simple. All science is because we want to understand the world and understand ourselves and understand the relationship between the two, period. Period. Every scientist is working with their perceptions, their thinking, and the thinking that, that they were given, and their sole purpose somewhere deep inside is to discover and understand more of the world, more of themselves, and the relationship between the two, right? Okay. So that when, I'm, when I'm talking about health and wholeness, how can science not be related to that, right? It, it becomes so obvious when we break it down this way. Now, what is the connection with quantum science? First of all, there's, a, there's so much controversy about discussion of the quantum. So I want to clarify one thing right at the beginning. This whole idea of quantum, quantum science and quantum physics started with Max Planck, who borrowed the concept of the quantum. Key phrase for, all, for the audience to understand. Regardless, if you're a quantum physicist, if you're a scientist, if you're a physician, if you are an artist, a painter, it doesn't matter. This is key for everybody to understand. Max Planck borrowed and applied the concept of the quantum that was already existing for centuries and applied it into physics so that he could solve a particular physics problem, right? And what is a quantum ultimately? It is a unit, a unit of anything. It is something with a distinct boundary around it is what a quantum is. It is a quantity. A quantity is what a quantum is, a distinct unit of quantity. So for him, it was energy. So rather than saying that energy was continuous and flowing, what he did was quantize energy into certain packets, and each of those packets is called a quantum. And so because he had this concept available in the public sphere, in the language sphere, in the thought sphere, he was able to borrow it and apply it very successfully to physics and to energy, and thereby the birth of quantum physics happened. Now, quantum physics has been very successful. It's used in all, in all our latest technologies, right? We know that it is one of the most powerful and specific um, scientific discoveries 
uh, in all of time. So therefore, every time we hear the word quantum now, we always associate it with physics. And that is where the blind spot is. We have forgotten that the quantum is mathematically and experimentally defined in physics, yes, but that mathematical and experimental definition, that notation, is not all of what the quantum is. It is the physicist perspective of what a quantum is applied to energy. And it has been very useful and very successful, but we should not forget where it comes from. So let's look at that second part of the puzzle, which is where it comes from. Where does this idea of a quantum come from? In other words, where does the idea of a specific unit come from? What defines a unit? A boundary. Let's just take some everyday examples. What defines your hand? If you hold up your hand in front of you right now as, you, as you're looking forward, you see your hand there. But how do you know what defines that hand? Well, it's very simple. It's the outline of your hand. If you take your other finger from your other hand and just trace the outline of your hand, just spread your fingers out and trace the outline of that hand, you will see that it is this line you are tracing that separates what we call hand from what we call space. This hand is situated in space. And we know that this is a hand only because of that boundary that you just traced. In fact, even if you remove your hand, if you could still mentally visualize that boundary, you would say there is a hand there, right? That outline. In fact, that's what we yes. do with tracing paper. Just yes. by tracing, right? Am I still with you? You still have me? Oh, oh, you are definitely with me. This is fascinating. Keep going. Okay. <laughs> okay, great. So on tracing paper, when we want to create um, a drawing, what do we do? We put tracing paper over and we trace the outline. And guess what? Even if you don't fill in the rest of the drawing, by looking at the outline, you can say yes. I can see the whale. Yes, I can see the plant. Yes, I can see the car. Why? Because we've defined the boundary. It is the boundary which quantizes an object into our experience. Let me say that again. That object we can think of as a quantum. It is one quantum of a car. It is one quantum of a plant. It is the boundary that quantizes that into our experience. And it is that concept and experience of a boundary that Max Planck borrowed to apply to energy. All right, let's, let's go back to where we were with the tracing. Now, where does this boundary come from? Here's the question. And this is when we get more deeply into the three minds framework. All right, where does this boundary come from? Just look around you now and pick an object. You might see a sofa. Just pick an object and look at the outline of that object, right? And ask yourself a question, whether it's your hand, your sofa. If the outline of this, let's go back to the hand. If the outline of this hand were to become blurry, where if you could take an eraser and kind of start to slowly, gently erase this boundary, the hand, we wouldn't really know what to call it. We'd say, well, yeah, it's a hand, but it's, it's starting to look weird. It's, I can't really appreciate what it is anymore. Let's say you erase it some more. Now, most of the hand, even the individual boundaries within the hand, like the boundaries of the fingers from the palm, you know, the little, the, the lines that separate the phalanges of the finger, the lines within each finger, let's say all of these start to blur. At some point, we would say, I don't know, is it a hand anymore? When the boundaries disappear, the object also starts to disappear. Now we're getting into 
some of the deepest aspects of what I call the Three Minds Framework. The Three Minds Framework suggests that what we experience as this world is directly in relationship with our sense of identity and that what we are fundamentally is not something that is local, is not something that is restricted to one particular space-time coordinate. And when we see ourselves, when we recognize the deeper nature of being human, what we experience is that we are not a localized being, but we are a kind of potential or a kind of possibility. And when we identify with a particular kind of experience, thought, identity, then this experience of having a particular body and a particular personality comes, into, comes to fruition. And along with that, and only, only when this sense of identity localizes, crystallizes, and expresses as a particular body and a particular mind personality, perceive the world as a series of particular things. Wow, in you other explained words, that so well. <laughs> okay, keep going. In other words, the fundamental nature of the world is potential. The world mm-hmm. of a fundamental nature is not made up of things. However, the world can be perceived and engaged with as though it is made up of many things. And the way to perceive and engage the world or the universe as though it is made up of many things, is to take on a localized identity, body, personality. So we can say the world is multiple, the world is dual, we can say the world is fundamental potential. They are all right from different perspectives. And the place this quantum comes from, the original source, the home, the, the... the cauldron in which the quantum is born is in our own identity. When we quantize ourselves, our own identity, to be this particular person, this particular thing, this particular personality, we engage and express the world in the same way. When we quantize ourselves, we quantize the potential nature of the world as made up of distinct things with boundaries. This source from which the word quantum was born into the public consciousness centuries before it was adopted into quantum physics. Some human being recognized, maybe not where this came from, but they recognized that there is this experience. There is this kind of thing that I can't really name, which is that something that is non-localized can be localized. Something that is non-quantized can be quantized. And that I'm going to call a quantum, said this human being, whoever it was several centuries before Max Planck. What this person may not have recognized is where that comes from. It came from his or her own identity being quantized, but also having some insight somewhere that, you know what, this is not the only way. There is something more than this. And therefore, I'm going to name this and say this is a quantum and there is something else that can be not quantized. Max Planck, maybe not knowing the source of it, maybe not, maybe, maybe knowing, because he actually also said that um, mind is the matrix from which all matter is created or something like that, I'm paraphrasing. So Max Planck had a great deal of insight, insight, but whether he recognized it or not, he adopted this 
sense and understanding of quantizing that was existing in the public consciousness that originated from the sense of quantizing identity and applied it successfully to quantum physics. So is it any wonder that quantum physics is so powerful? No, because it is representative and symbolic and an adaptation of one of the most profound experiences, and that is an insight or a window into the nature of the world and the nature of what we are beyond localization. Oh, amazing explanation. Thank you for that. I, I mean, I'm really grateful to, um, to, for you to have shared that with us. Um, that's not something that we normally hear about or tend to think about, but I, I mean, you've made this very real for me. I really, I get it. I understand what you're saying. Unfortunately, our time is up. <laughs> And I have to say goodbye to you. I wanted to make one more point, but I'll stop. Sure, go ahead. You can. Go ahead. Okay. The other point I wanted to make is that, you know, now there's a lot of controversy about who should should comment on the quantum, you know. And I I think it's just ridiculous. It would be something like me being an ER doctor. I'm an emergency physician. My title is emergency physician. If I went around and said, nobody can comment on emergencies except emergency physicians, that would be ridiculous because an emergency – exists prior to emergency medicine. Emergencies existed prior to emergency physicians. We didn't invent them. We just took that concept and have interpreted it in the context of medicine. And the exact same is true for quantum physics. The quantum is not native to physics. The quantum is native to being human. And therefore, a quantum physicist takes it and interprets it mathematically and experimentally in the domain of physics. So perfect. Let's talk about that. But let's also recognize where it comes from and what else it might reveal about the world and who we are. Okay. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this has been a very powerful hour, um, and I've certainly enjoyed talking to you. And I feel that my mind has expanded, which um, it's one of the reasons why I do these shows. But this this topic has been particularly um, expansive. So, I thank you so much for contacting me and asking to be on um, this podcast. And I'm sure that my listeners learned a lot today from you. You're an amazing teacher. And, um, and thank you for all of that. Uh, thank you for opening up our minds this way. Thank you so much, Randy. Again, for people that are interested, check out the Jumpstart program, healthrevolution.org slash jumpstart. Feel your power and help others feel their power. Okay. Got it. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Take care. You too, Randy. Take care. All righty. Bye-bye. So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email me at loveyourlife at randyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.